Well, we're still in First Peter at chapter 5. Again, I, I, um, I had hoped that maybe we could finish it. <laughs> but as it turns out, we're just going to cover one verse today. And that would be verse 10. So let's read that. First Peter 5.10 But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, Gee, uh, Peter, you could have left that part out, right? After you've suffered a little while, God is going to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And actually, he says, may the God of all grace. And so, from Peter's perspective, this is kind of a, you know, a blessing. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee. But only here it's may the God of all grace... After you've suffered a while, may he perfect you, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, your word is so amazing, uh, so incredible, that it is possible to take one verse and really just dig deeply into it. There's so much there because this is a divine book the breath of God, your breath, God, breathed into the writers of the Old and New Testament. So we do ask, God, that you'd bless this time as we study your word together. We pray that you continue that ongoing process of training, equipping us, perfecting us, maturing us. And we know that it is a lifelong process. We pray that you'd help us to remain committed, dedicated to that task of becoming more like Jesus and getting closer to knowing you even as we are known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's take the word but. This little word connects verse 10 back to verse 9 that we finished off last week. Resist him, the devil, Satan, our enemy, the, the roaring lion. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings, there's that word again, are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And so, again, Peter was addressing this issue of spiritual warfare. Don't be discouraged. And we do have that tendency sometimes to ha start having our own little pity party, right? Nobody is, has ever gone through what I'm going through, right? They don't, nobody understands. Nobody in the history of the world has ever had it as bad as I do. Talk about the ultimate pity party, the ultimate victim mentality. And so Peter's saying, hey, listen. You're not going any through anything different than what your brothers and sisters throughout the world are going through. So be encouraged. You're not alone. And so then he says, but. Peter didn't want to end his first epistle by reminding his readers that it is their lot in life as believers only to suffer. That's not what he's saying. So hold your horses here. But may the God of all grace. Peter wants to encourage his readers, and that would include us, with the fact that God, the God we serve, is not only gracious, and we're going to dig deeper into that, that concept of grace, not only is he gracious, he's the source of all grace. And you meet certain people as you go through life and Sometimes you meet someone, you might say, well, they're, they're a very gracious person. But just like every other positive quality that we might identify in someone, they might possess that quality, but God is that quality. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am a way, I am a truth. And people today say there are many different truths, right? You realize what utter nonsense that is. When somebody says there are many different truths, oh, you may have your truth and I have mine. They might as well just do this. Because that's about how much that statement is worth. To say, oh, there are many. No, there's not many different truths. There's one truth. God is the truth. And so he's the source. Not only is he gracious, he is the God of all grace. Noah Webster the uh, gold standard, if you will, in uh, dictionaries. 
when we could argue that the height, uh, the American English was at its height, at its peak, our literacy level was at its peak, uh, you don't have to look very far to see that that's true. When you look at the way people write, speak today, anybody that thinks we have progressed, again, they might as well go, because the writings of authors from that period, most people can't even read them today and understand them. So here's Noah Webster. Grace, the free unmerited love and favor of God. We know that. Grace is God's unmerited favor. That means we don't deserve it. We have no merit. We have done nothing to deserve it. But listen to this. I love this part. The spring and source. So here it is. God's grace, the spring and source of all the benefits men receive from him. The spring and the source of all benefits men receive from him. In other words, there is not one single blessing that we receive from God based upon our own merit. We don't deserve any of it. He's the God of all grace. Here's another aspect of grace. Favorable influence of God. God is favorable towards us because of his grace. Divine influence or the influence of the Spirit in renewing the heart and restraining from sin. Some people think grace means you can be saved and do whatever you want. That's God's grace. Since I'm forgiven and I don't receive any of His blessings based upon my own merit, then God's grace also means I can pretty much do what I want because I'm forgiven. One aspect of God's grace is in renewing the heart. A renewed heart does not desire to pursue the passions of the flesh. A renewed heart and restraining from sin. Did you realize that it's by God's grace that we don't sin? That He gives us the strength, the power, the ability through His Holy Spirit to restrain ourselves? The only true self-restraint anyone could ever exercise would be that restraint that comes from the Spirit of God. Three, the application of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. That's God's grace. We who are unrighteous and undeserving, and yet God takes the righteousness of Christ and applies it to us, imparts it to us so that we can have relationship with Him, so that we can be saved and spend eternity with him. And finally, number four, a state of reconciliation to God. That's a big, important, powerful word, reconciliation, to be reconciled. Why do we need to be reconciled? Because the human race was alienated from God way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell, when they disobeyed God and plunged this world into chaos. That's not the way it was supposed to be. And every human being needs to be reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. May the God of all grace... And by the way, God is the source of all good things. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. So He's the God of all grace. He is the Father of mercies. And mercy... If you wanted to look at these things as a, as a coin, on one side, maybe heads, you have grace, God's unmerited favor. On the other side, you have mercy, which is the counterpart to grace. Grace is His unmerited favor. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. Have mercy on me, O God. Don't give me what I deserve. I deserve punishment. I I'm sorry, I know that flies in the face of most people today because we're bombarded 24 hours a day. And it, but look at the great contradictions we face every day in this world. On the one hand, they tell us they want us to, to think highly of ourselves, to have good self-esteem, to look in that mirror and say, 
You're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, people like you. But then based upon your ethnicity, your cultural background, they turn right around and tell you you're evil. Because you're not a certain color, certain ethnicity, certain economic status. Basically today, anyone who is successful is evil. Everybody's a victim. See, this worldly, secular philosophies of men and psychology makes absolutely no sense. They'll put you in jail for harming an animal and give you an award for killing an unborn baby. Do you want to follow people who think like that? Because I sure don't. That's why I follow God. I'm not advocating the harming of animals, by the way. <laughs> and it even goes into the political realm. It just depends. And, and by the way, folks, as much as people want to argue against this and attack people like me and other pastors, I'm not the only one who speaks out on these issues. But you really can't separate them. See, a lot of people try to separate their spiritual life from the other aspects you know, you've got your social life, you've got your family life, you've got your work life, and then you have your religious life, and everything's boxed and compartmentalized, and they don't intersect. That's not the way God made things. Everything intersects. It's all interconnected. The psychologists try to separate us out between, you know, id and super id and ego and all this. The Greek word in the New Testament for salvation is sozo, and it means the salvation of the entire being. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Jesus came to save every part of us. Every part of us that's created in the image of God. And so for those who say, well, Christians shouldn't get involved in politics. So you're saying that only non-believers should decide how our country should be run then, right? Whether we're going to have a godly biblical nation like our founding fathers intended. Or we're going to have a hellhole. I think Trump used a different word. <laughs> and he wasn't describing America. But he was certainly accurate, maybe crude, maybe too graphic. Although then it turned out, as they went to explore the various video clips, a lot of other people had already said the same thing. And the fact of the matter is, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And if God is not the Lord of that nation, it's going to be a hole. Because who's in charge? The devil. And that's his specialty. Creating holes. It is. It is. Ted asked me in the office this morning before the service. He says, is it going to be another fire and brimstone message? And I said, I don't know. That's up to the Holy Spirit. I said, this stuff is never in my notes. <laughs> I said, it's up to God, Ted. I don't know. I guess I could have taken a wild guess. No idea how I got there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. If you want mercy, you're going to go to the progenitor of mercy, aren't you? The Father. Anybody else who engages in acts of mercy is simply his offspring, his representative. God is the Father of mercies and the God of how much comfort? All comfort. Not southern comfort. <laughs> Not false comfort. The God of all comfort. And so why is it that so many people, including many who identify as Christians, the last person they go to for comfort is God? His comfort is real comfort. Good comfort, right comfort. Not false comfort. He's the God of all comfort. 1 John 4, 6, we have known and believed the love of, that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. God isn't one of the many expressions of love. He is not a pathway to love. He is love. He's the God of all grace, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, and he is love. There's that old country song, Looking for love in all the wrong places. 
so much of what we identify as love isn't love at all. It's lust. You know, there's different kinds. In the, in the Greek New Testament, you have, you have phileo, brotherly love, which is, there's nothing wrong with it. That's good. Philadelphia used to have that. That's where the name comes from, Philadelphia, phileo, the city of brotherly love, it was called. It's a little different today. But phileo, warm, tender feelings of affection for one another. That's good stuff. There's another word that's not used in the Greek New Testament, but it's another one of the words the Greeks used to identify one type of what many call love, and it's eros. That's where we get the English word erotic or erotica, and it has to do with sensual love, if you will. It's really more of a lust. They even had a pickup called the Chevy Love. From what I've heard, most people didn't really love it. They don't make it anymore. But then you've got the ultimate expression of love in the New Testament. Agape, as you know, God's love, unconditional love. So again, if you're looking for love anywhere else, because even those that we love and that, that love us, without God's help, without God's strength, without the infilling of God's Spirit, we could never hope to rise to that level of true agape love. It only comes from God. God is love. He's the God of all grace. He's the Father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. He is love. Does it sound like maybe He's the source of all good things? James 1.17 Every good and perfect gift is from above. And yet so often, where are we looking for the good and perfect gifts? Here on earth. They're not found here. They're from above. And comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You see, here on earth, uh, the same person that perhaps bestowed upon you a wonderful gift today, tomorrow may hate your guts. Have you ever experienced that? I have. God doesn't change. There's no shadow of turning. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And once you yield your life over to him and become a child of God, you are forever his. He is forever yours. You can take it to the bank. But may the God of all grace, who called us. How many times has somebody said to you, I'll give you a call? And you don't ever hear from them, right? How many times have you done that to other people? There's a lot of reasons why. Sometimes, I, just, I don't know, there's just a blockage there. I just can't seem to return that call. I'm not mad at the person. And maybe sometimes it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's sometimes God doesn't want us talking to certain individuals. It's not the right time. They're not in the right frame of mind. We're not in the right, right frame of mind. There could be a lot of reasons. But nonetheless, oftentimes we're really good at telling people we're going to call them, and then we don't. And they're waiting for that call, and they're disappointed, and they're sad. And, but God called us. What amazing, incredible miracle it is that a perfect, holy, righteous God would call us in our fallen state. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but it's obvious that there are some people, at least on the outward appearance, are more deeply steeped in sin than others. And there would certainly be certain individuals that if uh, you were compelled to call, you would be very reluctant to do so. Right? Someone engaging in a lot of very vile practices and activities. You would have no desire, no reason to be in contact with someone like that other than if God put you in contact with them to share His love. But other than that, and even the Bible is clear, that bad company corrupts good morals. We do have to be careful about our associations. 
When someone exhibits absolutely no interest or desire in turning from a life of wickedness and sin, we still are called upon by God to love them, but it's not necessarily wise to be in association with them. Proverbs says, A man of many companions comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, most preachers like to use that verse and say that it's about Jesus, and certainly we could make that application, that Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother, but technically that's not what that scripture means. What it means is, if you're someone who's more concerned about having a, a broad network of shallow relationships, a man of many companions comes to ruin. You're much better off with a few deep, strong relationships with fellow believers who share your beliefs, your goals, your values, rather than a bunch of shallow relationships with people who only have their best interest at heart and they don't even really know what their best interests are because they're not following God. Who called us? From God's perspective, why in the world would you ever call us? You know what I mean? And then you hear people say, oh, um, wow, I found God. And then I say, well, I didn't know he was lost. No, he sought us out. He called us. He sought us out. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. When you're lost, you can't even find yourself. God called us. He was the initiator of the relationship. And I'm telling you what an initiator he is. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Talk about initiating a relationship. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's the initiator. We're the respondents. And that's where God's sovereignty and our free will meet. He calls. He reaches out. He seeks after us. He initiates a relationship. I mean, on the human level, at least traditionally, it was traditional that the man would pursue the woman. He would be the initiator. In the old days, of course, he would approach the, the parents, the father, and try to negotiate a deal for an arranged marriage. We don't do that anymore. But I've seen so many times through the years, and it's kind of sad. It kind of breaks your heart a little bit because I've, I've seen in the church where someone will say, well, God told me that I'm going to get married to that person. But then you talk to that person and they say, well, God didn't tell me. <laughs> and that's a bit of a problem. So you have an initiator and you have a respondent. And in order to consummate the relationship, the respondent has to respond to the initiator. God reaches out. He calls us. He seeks after us. But then because he, he is all the things we've talked about this morning, he's not the puppet master, you know, He's not uh, the evil emperor in Star Wars, you know, where he controls people. And it, it looks like Darth Vader's large and in charge, but the emperor's still pulling the strings, isn't he? God's not like that. He proved his love for us. He initiated. He reached out. He made the ultimate sacrifice, sending his one and only son to die on the cross for us. And then he says... I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be your father. I want a bride for my son, the bride of Christ. But he's not going to force that wedding ring on your finger. You have to choose. I am right-handed, so I kind of lean to the right. Ho, 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 ho! Ho, ho! Ho, ho! By the way, in heaven, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Keep that in mind. And the opposite of right is wrong. We could go on all day. 
Okay, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, because God is omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And before he even created this world, he already knew how it was all going to go down. People debate and, uh, about predestination. You know, the uh, Calvinists teach this uh, doctrine of irresistible grace that uh, if you are predestined, if you are chosen uh, before the foundations of the world, then you must get saved. You, you don't even have a choice. And conversely, they teach, if you're not, I'll come over here for a while. I, I, so I don't mean to neglect you guys over here. Conversely, they teach that if you weren't chosen before the foundations of the world, there's no hope for you. And so they don't put much emphasis on evangelism. Those who are going to get saved, get saved. Those who are not going to get saved, don't. And by the way, two-thirds of American churches today are practicing some form of Calvinism. I don't believe it's biblical. Last time I checked, John Calvin didn't write one book in the Bible. It's called Reform the Reformed Church. Two-thirds of American churches are reformed in some shape or fashion and practice Calvinism. And one of the major outgrowths of Calvinism and Reformed theology is anti-Semitism and a rejection of Israel. They, for the most part, teach God is done with Israel. Every promise in the Bible now applies only to the Gentile New Testament church. And we see more and more people, so-called Christians, turning against Israel, turning against the Jews, favoring the Palestinians, which is, by the way, there's really no such thing as a Palestinian. There isn't. They're Arabs. Palestine never existed. It's a myth. It's always been the land of Israel. Before that, it was Canaan. The Canaanites lived there. Jordan did not want to deal with the massive refugee crisis that they had going way back. And so they thrust all these people over into Israel and tried to create this false state of Palestine. But you know what? God says that the Jews are the apple of his eye. And a lot, of, you know, a lot of people say, well, most of them are secular and some of them are pretty bad. Well, there's a lot of bad Gentiles too. Take your pick. And just as we pointed out here this morning that God is the God of all grace. He's the Father of mercies. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have to admit not one of us deserves what God has done for us. So who are we to turn around and judge God's chosen people? He will deal with them. What is our role, our responsibility? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. This is in the Bible, folks. I didn't make this up. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. And we've got massive amounts of Christians today, or so-called, I call them, cursing Israel and blaming Israel for all the problems in the Middle East. And I'm sorry, but a lot of it has to do with Reformed theology and Calvinism. And so once again, we find ourselves in the minority here. And this is something that Pastor Chuck Smith fought throughout his earthly ministry. In fact, any Calvary Chapel pastor who stepped forward and identified himself as a Calvinist was invited to go somewhere else. Chuck would say, don't leave, Matt, just leave. He was from a different generation. He wasn't afraid to speak the truth. He wasn't afraid to take a stand. And Pastor Chuck would periodically send out letters to all of us Calvary Chapel pastors when some new uh, deceptive teaching would come out, some new deceptive book, some new deceptive teacher. He would send us a letter and tell us we do not endorse or embrace this man or his teachings. We do not carry his books in our bookstore. 
And as time went on, more and more Calvary chapels began to defy Pastor Chuck and do their own thing. But Chuck was right. He's in heaven now, but he's still right. It's not popular to do those things, and it's even less popular now than it was when Pastor Chuck did it for 50 years. And you know what? The other guys can do what they want, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm not worshiping Pastor Chuck, but Paul, the Apostle Paul, told his readers, Be ye imitators of me, even as I imitate Christ. And I've, I've seen or known few men in my lifetime that have imitated Christ as well as Pastor Chuck. Was he perfect? No. There are no perfect men. There are only those who want you to think they are. Chuck never, ever gave any inkling of that attitude that he wanted or expected people to view him as perfect. But he was an imitator of Christ, and therefore I'm an imitator of him. I'm not doing that great of a job, but I am trying. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And here's the ultimate goal. Here's God's ultimate goal. Again, today, so many people think it's all about them. You know, selfie, selfie, selfie. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. We're back to 1 Peter 5.10. Who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Not our eternal glory, His eternal glory. The ultimate goal of salvation, of God redeeming the human race, is to glorify Himself. To prove that He's everything He says He is. But talk about grace. Unmerited favor. Not only are we called to be His children, children of God, To know Him, to love Him, to serve Him. We are chosen by Him to share in His eternal glory. I think that Peter's readers, including you and I, should be extremely encouraged by this, don't you? So there's a contrast here. We're talking about temporary sufferings in this life versus eternal glory with the Father in paradise. You see how one pales in comparison to the other? But it's a matter of constantly keeping our eyes in focus. Paul says we fix our eyes on that which is not seen. How do you do that? It's got to be in the Spirit, right? It's got to be through the Word of God and the Spirit of God dwelling within you that we are fixed and focused on that which is not seen. That which is seen is oftentimes very deceptive. So we need to be tuned in to that which is not seen. How do we do that? Through the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, prayer, Fellowship, all those same elements that we talk about around here all the time. Talked about them last week. See, this means that in the life to come, when we receive our eternal immortal bodies, we will be like Him. And that's the only way to share in His eternal glory is to be eternal ourselves. 1 John 3, 2 Beloved, now we are children of God. That's, that's present tense. The moment you are born again by the Spirit of God, the moment you confess your sins and repent, invite Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior, to wash away your sins with His precious blood, you become a child of God. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So from God's perspective, it's a done deal. You're a child of God, you have eternal life. You're going to spend eternity with God in glory. But we're still living here in this temporal realm, this fallen world, in the fullness of what we will be. We, we haven't seen that yet. We have little glimpses in the Scriptures. The apostles got to see the risen Christ. Peter, James, and John saw Him in His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
But, and we have a picture of him in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, with the eyes like flames of fire and feet like burnished bronze and so forth. But we still haven't seen that full revelation of him or ourselves. But we know that when he is revealed, not just spiritually fixing our eyes on that which is not seen, but when he's fully revealed and the whole world looks upon the one that they have slain, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. By the way, this is an interesting little tidbit. The word glory appears 160 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. There are other very key words, doctrinal statements, that appear far less times than this. And that does not reduce their significance but glory appears 160 times and the word glorified appears 35 times. It's a big deal. Okay. To his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. Couldn't we have left that part out? Can't we just go straight to the glory? And there are those that would like to do that and even attempt to do that by denying that Christians ever rightfully suffer. It's rightful because God allows it for His purposes. The good news is that the sufferings we endure in this life are temporary. And again, God is the one who enables us to look beyond the temporary into eternity. He gives us an ability that other people don't have because they don't know what lies ahead. Many think there's nothing Others think it's something quite different than what it really is. But when we can see through the eyes of God, through the eyes of Jesus Christ, and again through His Holy Word, enlightened and illuminated by His Holy Spirit, we're able to gaze, not perfectly, not clearly entirely, but we're able to gaze into eternity. The good news, folks, is the sufferings of this life are temporary. They will not last forever. That's a promise. That's a guarantee. So after you've suffered a while, Jesus said in the world, you will have tribulation. Not you might. You will. Again, it varies. Not everybody endures the same level of tribulation or suffering. Many down through the centuries have been tortured, have been killed, Others have not. But again, as we've been touching on this topic of spiritual warfare and resisting the devil, there are many types of suffering. There's mental, emotional, uh, physical, and so one way or another. But I think the point is that anytime you take a stand for the creator of all things, for the God of the universe, you are going to become a target. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. What was it that resulted in Abel's untimely death, his murder, as he had an ungodly brother of jealous of his relationship with God? And the price that Abel paid was his brother killed him. And that's back in the day when people were living to be almost a thousand years old. Now, we don't know exactly how old Abel was when he died, but it would seem that he was fairly young and would have lived out a very long, fruitful life, but it was terminated by his evil, carnal, ungodly brother. That's been going on since the dawn of human history. And whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're Jew or Christian, if you identify with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are a prime target. So you better just figure that out and get used to it right now. But again, it's temporary. The sufferings of this life we go through them, we endure them, we stand firm because we know what awaits us in eternity. Right? And we have to be constantly reminded because it's so easy for us to become distracted and sidetracked by the things of this life and the things of this world and the deceptive words of men. Even some men who call themselves Ministers of the gospel of Christ. Jesus said, 
By their fruit, you will know them. So what are the things that Peter is praying that the God of all grace will do for us? First of all, perfect us through the sufferings. Even, as, even our sufferings are an aspect of God's grace, folks. We could endure them a lot better if we realized that and understood it. We're not being punished. Now, sometimes God chastens His people, but most of the time, it's just the normal sufferings that brothers throughout the world are enduring, and God intends it for His good. Our sufferings are an aspect of God's grace. Because that like any loving father, he would prefer his kids not to have to suffer. But again, he cares more about our eternal destination, our eternal rewards. And he realizes to help us get there, he's going to have to allow us to suffer. Trials will make us bitter or better. God doesn't want us to be bitter, does he? So we have to learn how to endure through trials and tribulations. Even our sufferings are an aspect of God's grace because He uses them to bring us to a place of maturity, perfect. It doesn't mean perfect like Jesus is perfect, not in this life. Yes, in eternity we will be perfected. But in this life, our perfecting has to do with our maturing. And we'll, we'll get into the Greek word here in a moment that gives us an even deeper understanding of this word. He uses these sufferings to bring us to a place of maturity in this life and absolute perfection in eternity. James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, this is the one we all love to hear when our friend tells us, hey man, hang it, listen, count it all joy, bro. You want to lay hands on him in the Lord. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Woo, praise the Lord. Maybe not quite like that. But, again, rejoice. Wow, this is another opportunity that God's given me to grow. I'm not sure how often we really, that's the first thought on our mind. Knowing that the testing of your faith, everybody wants to be blessed all the time, of course. Right? It's, it's like the little kid who wants the cupcakes and the candies and the lollipops and the ice cream bars. That's all he wants, right? Right? If you just gave your kid whatever he wanted to eat when he's little, that's all he would eat for the most part. Some kids are different, but for the most part, they would love to subsist on cake and pie and ice cream and candy, right? And so an unwise parent might say, well, I love little Johnny. If that's what he wants, I'm going to give it to him. No. If you really love little Johnny, you're going to give him things that are nutritious, right? And if you really love little Johnny, I've been, I told you guys I've been reading through Proverbs lately and I came across the part where it says, you know, spare the rod and spoil the child and all that, which that's the kind of stuff today that gets you arrested. Again, I choose to follow God. I'm not advocating beating children or beating anyone, but there's no doubt that corporal punishment has its place. And you look at the world we're living in today, which has rejected corporal punishment and I dare anyone in this room to prove to me that it's better. I'll take the wisdom of God's word every time. And the funny thing is that many of the other countries in the world who are constantly criticizing the United States, they do practice corporal punishment. It's just interesting. The testing of your faith produces patience, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm just so patient already. I don't need any more trials. <laughs> That's probably one of the things we struggle with the most, especially in this day and age we're living in. Patience is pretty much a lost virtue. And I've, I've, I've had friends in the past who said, well, you know, until we learn what God's trying to teach us, he's going to just keep us going around that same mountain over and over again. He's trying to teach us patience because it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the evidence that the Spirit of God lives in us and is working in us. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
So, katartizo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it means to mend what has been broken or torn. God wants to perfect us. He wants to mend what has been broken or torn. We've been broken by sin. We're in a fallen state and we need to be repaired. God is about the business of perfecting us, maturing us, repairing us. It means to repair, to complete. We come to Christ broken and incomplete. Just a shadow of what he created us to be. It means to fit out, equip, put in order, arrange, adjust. Now you know why being a follower of Christ is often uncomfortable. He's kind of like our heavenly chiropractor. <laughs> adjusting. Okay, lay down on the table now. Wham, bam, bam. And he's not a heavenly chiropractor who uses one of those little clicker things. Click, click, click. Let's not even get into that. <laughs> if your chiropractor's a clicker, I'm sorry. Please don't be offended. I'm somewhat skeptical, I have to admit. Put in order, arrange, adjust, to fit or frame for oneself. Prepare, to strengthen, perfect, complete. I like this part, listen to this. Make one what he or she ought to be. That's what God's about the business of doing, perfecting us in this life through sufferings to make one what he ought to be. That's God's purpose and goal as he works in our lives to make us what we ought to be, what he created us to be. We're created in the image of God. He's working daily so that we can look more like him because that's the only way we can win other people to Christ is when they truly see Christ in us. And sadly, many times they see something else. And we're baffled, we're puzzled, we're mystified by the fact that given the truth, the rationale, the logic behind who God is, what he's done, what it means to accept him, what it means to reject him, we're just, we're mystified that people aren't more receptive. And yet so often, it's very difficult for them to see him in us. Caratizo. Perfect. Secondly, establish. Starezzo. It means to make stable, to place firmly, set fast. Well, when I read these words, again, it's kind of heartbreaking. I've been a believer almost my entire life since I came into the age of accountability. I've been in numerous churches, but I was never a church hopper. And I've been a minister for so many years now. But I've seen so many unstable Christians over the years. Unstable in so many different ways. And that's just not what God intends. That's not what he's all about. He wants to establish us. But if we're always running from him, if we're running from the truth, if we're running from the trials, the sufferings, and this tendency to blame it on anybody or anything except yourself, As you get older, which maybe someday I will, you begin to take stock of your life. You begin to evaluate. And I don't know if you're open and honest with yourself. Uh, I wish I wasn't sometimes. But the Holy Spirit won't let you get away with that. David said, search me, O God, know my heart and try my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me. If you, if you give free reign to the Holy Spirit in your life, he will search your heart and he will show you who you really are. Not because he hates you, not because he wants to bum you out, because he wants you to get real and get right. And so you do, you, you, you take stock, you evaluate all the things that you would wish you'd done differently. And people, again, I, I, I've known this for a long time about myself, I don't know about you guys, and I don't think it's just me. I think it's everybody. If we were honest, the majority, we, don't, we all face trials and tribulations in life, sufferings. God allows it. Don't worry, I won't fall off, Lord willing. 
But the majority of the problems we have in this life are self-inflicted. You see? And I look back on my life, and when I did the right thing, when I made good choices and good decisions, I give all the credit to God because it wasn't me. But I know full well that the mistakes, the bad choices, the bad decisions, it all rests on me, not him. I will never blame him for any of it. Because every time you listen to him, things turn out right. That doesn't mean they're always easy, but they turn out right. And yet we have so many people in the world today that are mad at God. Many of the people who claim they don't believe in him, they're really just mad at him. It's not that they don't believe in him, they're just mad at him. I'll show you, God, I don't believe in you. Well, then why are you talking to me? <laughs> yeah, you're not real, you don't exist. Because they're mad at him. Why are they mad at him? Because they're stupid. We know God's not stupid. Somebody here's got to be stupid. And it ain't God. He wants to establish you to make you stable. If you'll just listen to Him, if you'll just submit to Him, if you'll stop rebelling, if you'll stop running from church to church because every time somebody speaks the truth to you, you get offended. It's not going to do you much good to go to a church where they don't tell you the truth. It's like going to a doctor and you've got cancer and he tells you it's the flu. And that's not really that far-fetched. There have been a lot of misdiagnoses. And people go home and the next thing you know, it's too far advanced and they can't be helped now. Because some doctor didn't do his job, he didn't do his work. Well, pastors are supposed to be spiritual doctors. And if I'm telling you, it's, it's okay, I'm okay, you're okay, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, God likes you. Yeah, He loves you. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him as the Son of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Savior of the world, the one who laid down his life on the cross of Calvary for your dirty, rotten, filthy sins. The worst thing that could ever happen to anyone is to think that they're too good for God. I don't need God. I've got it all figured out. I've got it covered. I'm a good person. You know how many good persons there are going to be in hell? A large multitude. And there's going to be a lot of rotten people in heaven because they didn't get there on their own merit. They got there on his merit. You could be the best quote, best person in the world based upon your philanthropy and your demeanor, you know, and your behavior and just apparently the model of virtue and so forth. But if you ain't got Jesus, you ain't got nothing. Some of the quote, best people that have ever walked this, oh, that's not right, that's not fair. That guy went to prison for being a serial killer. He accepted Christ and then he was executed and he, you know, he says he's saved and he's going to heaven. Well, you want to talk fair? <laughs> if you want to talk fair, the best person in this world that doesn't know Jesus still deserves to go to hell. The worst person, whoever that might be, and however you define worstness, by faith in Christ, by grace, through faith, confessing their sins, repenting before God, will spend eternity with Him, whether you like it or not. Surely I can get through one verse. <laughs> to make stable, place firmly, set fast, fix. We sang a song last week, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They will never be shaken, never be moved. How unshakable are you? How stable are you? Because that's what God intends. To strengthen, make firm, to render constant. Confirm one's mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Literally, and this is, what, this is how we define repentance. Literally, to establish you, it means to turn resolutely in a certain direction. Jesus said, having put your hand to the plow. 
And when you and you know when they used to use the horse-drawn or ox-drawn plows, you got to keep your eye on where you're going, right? He said, if you put your hand to the plow, that means if you profess faith in me, if you determine to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You set your hand to the plow, and if he says, then you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Ouch. That's being firmly established. You're, that's turning resolutely in a certain direction. All these people who are resting on their laurels that they went forward in a church service 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Now, what are you doing for God today? And I'm not talking about earning your salvation. I'm asking you, is your hand still to the plow? Are you looking back? Are you looking to the right? Are you looking to the left? Shortly before Jesus left this world and ascended into heaven, he was having a talk with Peter, and it cracks me up because the Apostle John's just following, watching from a little bit of a distance. What's Jesus? They had this competition thing going, you know. What's, what's, Pe what's Jesus saying to Peter? Gee, I hope he's not making any promises to him that he didn't make to me. And Peter sees it. He sees John watching him. Jesus is giving Peter these final words. And he, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. And Peter looks over and he sees John. He says, what about that guy? And Jesus basically tells him, that's none of your business. You keep your eyes on me. You keep your hand to the plow. Strengthen. He wants to perfect us, mature us, establish us, stabilize us. James chapter 1, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Okay, are you in the world or are you in Christ? How many times have we seen this? How many times perhaps have we tried it? One foot in the world and one foot in the church. One foot in the world, one foot with Jesus, right? Trying to have it both ways, play both sides. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways and should not expect to get anything from God. And then when they don't get anything from God because they're unstable in all their ways, they get mad at God. He wants to stabilize us. What good are we to him in this world if we are unstable? None. First John chapter 5 seems to allude to the fact that if we get to the point in our lives where we're professing Christ publicly and we're no longer of any use to Him, it might be hasta la bye bye. Because God's grace again would say, you know what? You're down there doing more harm than good. You're, dis, you know, you're making me look bad and you're making yourself look bad. I'm taking you out of there. Strengthen. Sanao, I think it is. Sanao. Strengthen to make strong. To strengthen one's soul, the inner man, the inner woman. He wants to strengthen you, and he uses sufferings to do that. You look back on the history of the world, the many uh, nations that were monarchies, kings, queens, princes, princesses, the pampered life and all that, they were oftentimes the most unhealthy ones. Do you know that the practice of consuming large amounts of processed refined sugar began with the upper class. The poor people couldn't afford it. And it created all kinds of diseases. The pampered class is usually the least healthy, oftentimes dies earlier. Now, today's world, the pampered class also has the money for a lot of high-tech medical treatment. But historically, that wasn't the case. And so oftentimes you have these hardy peasants living to be 80, 90, 100 years old. And these kings and queens and princes, they're weakly they're sickly. You know, they have all these diseases and problems. And that's what it's like spiritually. If you want to be a pampered princess for the Lord or brag about how you're the king's kid and you want God to pamper you and just give you everything you ask for, no questions asked, and be your, your puppet, you're going to be weak, sickly, 
may premature death may be involved spiritually, physically. He wants to strengthen us. How many of you want to be strong in the Lord? Then you've got to be willing to go through the sufferings. And again, many of them are self-inflicted. And certainly by running from them, trying to profess and confess your way out of them, I don't receive that. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. What if you're rebuking the very thing that God's trying to use to grow you? You're in big trouble. Quit blaming everybody else and blaming the devil and take responsibility. Suck it up and follow God. And he wants to settle you. Themaleo. Themalao. Uh oh. Themalao. To lay the foundation. He wants to settle you, to lay the foundation, to found, to make stable, to establish. You see how these different things interconnect. The laying of the proper foundation in our lives, again, involves suffering for Christ. So please note the pathway to strength stability and determination to building our lives upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ is suffering. I think of Richard Wormbrand, tortured for Christ. What's the, mar what is it? Pat's not here, is Sharky? The voice of the martyrs, right? Is that, is that Wormbrand? But I read his book many years ago as a young believer, late teens, early 20s, tortured for Christ in a Romanian prison. Corey Ten Boom suffered in a Nazi prison camp, World War II. She didn't get mad at God. God didn't put her there. The Nazis did. But God used her experience there to turn her into the, one of the most prominent Christian women of the 20th century. Johnny Erickson, quadriplegic. Had she not had that diving accident, and become a quadriplegic, you probably would have never heard of her. And yet there were people within the Word of Faith community actually criticizing her for not having enough faith to be healed. But, how many of us would be willing to endure what she has endured to be used to the magnitude that she's been used? Obviously, she didn't look for it. She didn't ask for it. But as it turns out, it was a tremendous blessing. She's reached millions of people with the gospel of Christ. Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've never read it, you need to read it. The pathway to stability, strength, determination, to building our lives upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, whether we like it or not, it's suffering. When I've done marital counseling through the years and I hear people talking about the... Uh, the uh, verbal, emotional abuse. And granted, in some ways, it's even more painful than the physical, but it's definitely not as dangerous in terms of your living or dying. The old expression, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Today, we live in a world of, I can't think of a good word that I can use here, but it's hurt. Oh, you're so hurt. And everybody seems to be hurt. We were taught growing up, ignore what people say. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. But again, many times our sufferings are our own fault. The way to fix that is not to run from it but to stand in Christ and let God as you confess and as you repent Lord I really blew it here please help me but I've often thought of Corey Tin Boom when I hear of not always women but a lot of times wives complaining about their ungodly husbands whom they married and I think of Corey in that Nazi concentration camp her sister died there. Her father died there. Other relatives of hers died there. It was infested with fleas. The living conditions were atrocious. The food was almost non-existent. The labor was unbelievably harsh. And she had her moments. But by and large, and again it was her sister Betsy really who 
set the example for Corey to praise God in every situation and to give him glory and to see him working in any and every situation. And then I think of the things that we as American Christians whine about and complain about today. And we should definitely thank God for his grace and his mercy. Because most of us have no concept of what others have suffered for the cause of Christ. Paul writes in Philippians 3.10. It's our last scripture. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Amen, Paul. Hallelujah. Resurrection, that's what I'm talking about. And the fellowship of his sufferings? Paul, just like Peter ruined verse 10 here. Paul ruins Philippians 3.10 by throwing in this phrase. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Are you nuts? No, because Paul knew that that was the pathway to strength, stability, and determination. To building his life upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And so I long for it, that I may know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Dying to self, denying self, not my will but thy will be done, Father. Paul says, I want the whole package. Because really, when it comes down to it, if you really study the Word of God and you see the words of Christ, the writings of the New Testament writers, the Old Testament writers, it really is all or nothing. The suffering is temporary, but the glory is eternal. Gold, silver, and other precious metals, how are they purified? By fire, by heat. Pottery, steel are stabilized and strengthened by the fire. I came across this great quote a soul is forged in the fires of adversity not comfort let me read that again it's so good a soul is forged in the fires of adversity not comfort that's the real real test are you the real deal are you a born-again believer in the lord jesus christ a disciple of christ a follower of christ how do you know how do you find out in the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, we were just kidding. Nebuchadnezzar, we'll bow down to you. Our God's no big deal. Just get us out of here. Is that what they said? Our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we'll never bow down. Let me read as we close. This is the, the great hymn. On Christ the solid rock I stand. Read it with me. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Next verse. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and sway. Final verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Chorus. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.